Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, I kind of was thinking that so things are so crazy in our world, <laughs> on this planet, um, that it might be fun <laughs> to escape for a little while and um, go to another planet or look at things that are extraterrestrial. Let's put it that way. Um, today, my guest is a uh, foremost expert, one of the foremost experts in UFOs and Roswell. And we're going to be talking today about why does the government suppress the children of Roswell? Now, I know some of you are thinking, what do you mean, suppress the children of Roswell? There was, there was no Roswell. This is all a conspiracy um, theory, and, and it was never proven, and so on. Well, we'll hear what my guest, Tom Carey, has to say. He is the author of a new book, just came out, called The Children of Roswell, A Seven-Decade Legacy of Fear, Intimidation, and Cover-Ups. I mean, it's very interesting, the Roswell incident, and I'll let Tom talk about what that is. Um, the Roswell incident occurred in 1947, so most of the parents who were around then are no longer around, but the children are. And whatever it is that did or didn't happen at Roswell, uh, the government seems to be very intent on not only spinning its own story, but on keeping the children of Roswell quiet. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, uh, Dr. Dr. Carroll. Glad to be with you. Yes. Well, I'm glad to have you on. This is this um, so-called. I understand. I understand. It's been eight years since I've been on your show. (laughs) Yes, we were just talking before the before we started. Tom and I were talking about how I had actually had him on eight years ago. And um, talking then, though, about UFOs more than Roswell. And, <laughs> and obviously this is something that still fascinates me for, for me to want you to come on again. But before we get into Roswell, I'd like to know um, what it is. You know, you have all degrees and you've been in the military and so on. Um, how could a nice guy like you... <laughs> Go down a path like this. I mean, what got you? What got you interested to begin with in believing in UFOs and believing in Roswell? Well, that's a good question. Uh, as a teenager, I uh, my bro- my older brother, who is a uh, he's now a retired, he's a professor emeritus at a major university. Uh, he read things like newspapers and books, and uh, he used to belong to a book club. And uh, there was this book lying around the house where we were both teenagers at the time, and uh, it was called The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. It was by Captain Edward Ruppelt, who was the former uh, commander or the, the, the director of Project Blue Book back in the early 1950s. And Project Blue Book, as you know, was the Air Force's investigative arm of uh, UFO reports. It turns out, from further research over the years, that it was really a uh, uh, public relations operation because the real reports, the real good ones, were going elsewhere. 
But anyway, there was this book lying around the house uh, that my brother had gotten through one of his book clubs. And ultimately, I read it, and it just, uh, wow, what, what are these things called UFOs? They seem to they seem to fly around our atmosphere, and they outrun our latest and fastest fighter jets. And well, what are these things? And uh, so that got me interested in the subject. I read a few more books by Donald E. Kehoe, who was the first really big advocate for government disclosure of what they knew about the flying saucers or UFOs uh, as they ultimately became known. And his books were very interesting. He was an excellent writer, and uh, that got me even more interested. And it, but but you know I you know I'm I was an athlete I was playing sports I was in college and what have you so I had a lot of demands on my time, and I was never like a, 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 a I was not obsessed with the subject it was just one of those things that was on the side you know oh this is very interesting uh, when's my next uh, football or basketball or baseball game, <laughs> but. Uh, so I went, in the, uh, I went into the Air Force because back in those days we were subject to the draft. And so uh, I still had a semester to go at college. And this is before we even had uh, student uh, government loans, uh, student loans to, to help you with your uh, higher education. So I, I didn't have money. I was on an athletic scholarship. And I had 12 units to go, but I didn't have any money to finish up, so I joined the Air Force. They had this special program and where if you, you uh, promised to, to uh, be in, their, in the service, in their service for X number of years, they would send you back to college. Well, I get in the Air Force, and that program is no longer <laughs> in existence. So I put in my time, I, my four years, and uh, I got out. Well, uh, just after I got out, this book came out called The Roswell Incident. And I said, Roswell Incident? What is that? Uh, maybe they spelled it wrong, uh, because I had, uh, was in the Air Force in California for a couple of years, and there was this town called Roseville. Mm. Maybe, maybe, maybe they mean Roseville. No, it was Roswell. So I read it. And it just blew me away. It was about a it was about a crashed UFO, left wreckage. It left bodies. It was, there was a cover up. There was threats. And I said, "Oh my goodness, this this is really something. It's it's just not lights in the sky," because most of what Rupelt and Kehoe talked about uh, was were lights in the sky type reports. Mm. But this had to do with physical wreckage. Little bodies uh, in a little town near uh, a little town in New Mexico near there, and uh, everything was uh, whisked away, and it was a uh, involved a cover up. The, the first they said it was a crash flying saucer. Then the Air Force the very next day came out and said no, it was a weather balloon. And the story died at that point. It was a two-day story back in 1947. And the, uh, the cover-up held for 30 years until 1978 when one of the officers, uh, Jesse Marcel Sr., who was the base intelligence officer of the 509th Bomb Group, 
he was part of a ham radio operation where he, a group of people they have these they have their own call numbers and they go breaker 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 this is KXW blah 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 and uh, so then they hook up one after the other and some of them are you know they have the number of people on those ham radio uh-huh. operations and he he was had emphysema he didn't know how much longer he had and at some point the subject of UFOs must have come up because he started talking about his involvement in the so-called Roswell incident for uh, 30 years previously. And this is before anybody heard of Roswell in the public sector other than that two-day story back 30 years previously. So it was not something something that uh, even people who were uh, UFO so-called buffs uh, Mm -hmm. knew anything about. So Stanton Friedman, who was... Uh, uh, sort of picked up the the torch after uh, 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 what's his name? I just mentioned him. Donald Kehoe uh, was no longer active and had passed away. Well, Stanton was in Louisiana giving a lecture on his UFO UFOs are real subject. He mm-hmm. had this uh, UFOs are real, and uh, he was at a TV station. And after the show. One of the producers said, well, you know, Stan, there's this fellow who lives in Homa, that's a small town in Louisiana. There's this fellow you want to talk to. He he says that he handled pieces of a UFO back in 1947. You want to mm. give him a call. And, of course, it was Jesse Marcel. So before he left Louisiana, Stan gave Jesse Marcel a call, took a few notes, and uh, thus began the civilian investigation of the Roswell incident, 1978. Mm -hmm. Two years later, after investigating the case with uh, author William Moore, who had written a book about the Philadelphia experiment, Uh, it's a long story, but we'll just let it go at that. William Moore authored a book about the Philadelphia experiment. He hooked up with uh, Bill Moore, and investigated for two years and wrote a book with the uh, language fellow Charles Berlitz. So it was, uh-huh. it was under the it was under the authorship of Berlitz and Moore because they felt Stanton Friedman didn't have a a well known as well known a name as uh, Charles Berlitz. And Berlitz had had a a uh, very successful book on the Bermuda Triangle at that time. So mm. that's why they brought in Berlitz. He had to, he was well known for this Bermuda Triangle mm. book that he wrote. Uh-huh. So the book was called The Roswell Incident. It was published in 1980. And there began the interest in the case. I read it shortly after it came out, and like I said, it blew me away. And all other UFO stories for me, were uninteresting that didn't have to do with this particular case. So that's when I focused solely on the the Roswell incident. And it was, oh, 11 years later, in 1991, I was through with my college uh, degrees, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I've been following this subject uh, off and on for years. I'd like to do something proactive. So I called up uh, Randall and Schmidt. They were a team at that point. They were reopening the 
Roswell case to try to solve it once and for all because the, the case was sort of just lingering out there after the publication of that book in 1980. So I called up Randall and Schmidt and asked them if they had done anything about the team of archaeologists that had allegedly discovered the crash. And they were also allegedly from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And I lived in Philadelphia. Mm. And I had degrees in archaeology <coughs> and anthropology. I said, oh. let me have a crack at it. So that's how I became active in the Roswell investigation in 1991. And that uh, my, if my math is correct, uh, Dr. Carroll, is that I've been on this case for 25 years. Yes, and you've been writing uh, articles and books and been a consultant and in documentaries and so on. So obviously, um, there's been it's it's maintained your interest for all these years. Okay, so tell us about it. What do you, well, first of all, what do you have to say to the people who say that it, nothing happened, that it was just uh, if not a weather balloon, then you know just some pieces of uh, miscellaneous. Um, I don't know, aluminum balloon, or something. Balloon material. <laughs> yeah. The Air Force, yeah, the Air Force position. Uh, they've had four explanations. They're up. They're, they're, they may be working on their fifth explanation, <laughs> if anybody would believe that. But their first, first explanation, of course, was that it was a, fly, a flying saucer. They used that term. It was a crash flying saucer. Well, why did they say that? I mean, didn't they think flying saucer would get us frightened? Well, it was either a local mistake by the base commander to get the truth out, or it was part of a plan to throw something out there and then take it away and make everybody mm. feel silly for believing it mm. in the first hmm. place. Hmm. That's interesting. So the, the, the first explanation was the, fly, the flying saucer. It lasted one day. The next day they said it was a weather balloon. Uh consisting of a, a rubber balloon, some tin foil that made up a radar target, some uh, balsa wood and baling twine that held the thing together. Now, you have to understand that the 509th Bomb Group in Roswell, this is the air group that ended World War II by dropping two atomic bombs on Japan. Hmm. They were the most elite unit in our uh, military and to think that they wouldn't be able to tell the difference between <laughs> a spaceship, an interplanetary spaceship, and uh, balsa wood, rubber material, tin foil, and bailing twine, to think that they couldn't <laughs> tell the difference between the two is uh, chilling because they had their finger on the atomic bomb. <laughs> uh huh. It was the only atomic bomb group in the in the world uh, capable of delivering atomic weapons uh, in time of war, and mm -hmm. the fact that they couldn't tell the difference between a a spaceship and a, and a balloon is uh, chilling. Yes, but that's what the Air Force expected everybody to believe, and certainly the press believed it because they dropped the story immediately. And everybody else, the military uh, uh, people that were involved, were threatened with jail, the prison terms in Leavenworth. And the civilians that were involved 
were threatened with not only their deaths, but the deaths of their children and the rest of the family as well, if they didn't keep it quiet. So the story, the, the cover-up held for 30 years until, uh, as I mentioned, Jesse Marcel broke, broke the ice back in 1978. Without him, there would be no Roswell incident that we would be talking about today. And so basically he thought he didn't have that much longer to live and he wanted people to know. Yes, you could you could you can only keep a secret bottled up some you know for some people because some people obviously took it with them to their graves but some people they couldn't keep it bottled up forever and and Jesse was one of those that he he had to he had to let loose with with the story which he did and uh, thank goodness he did because we have uh, since uh, Jesse was interviewed, uh, our investigation, we have un- uncovered over 600 people who have talked to us about this. Of course, some people will slam the phone down and uh, others won't answer, but we have talked to over 600 people about this. Now, that doesn't mean that all of them know the whole story. They only know their little piece of it. They only know their little piece of it, and it's been up to us, Don and myself, like a big jigsaw puzzle, uh-huh. to, put, to put the pieces together into a, uh, if you want to call it a tapestry or a framework that, that paints a picture. And, and we have done that to the point where uh, we're, we're satisfied that it was a crash, indeed, of an extraterrestrial spaceship with a crew of five, four of which were dead, upon impact or upon the explosion of the craft, and one that survived the crash and lived a few years until the early 50s. Wow. So, so, And we're also satisfied. Wait, wait, wait. let's leave it at that because um, the music means that we need to take a break. But, okay. Uh, but, I, <laughs> but, of course, we all want to hear more details about, uh, about the people who were in the craft. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. My guest is Tom Carey. He's the author of the new book called The Children of Roswell, A Seven-Decade Legacy of Fear, Intimidation, and Cover-Ups. And um, we're just, uh, just going to start hearing. Well, that's the part that interests me, the, the bodies, you know, the people or the, yes. whatever they uh-huh. want to call them, the, the, the beings that were in it. So yes. stay tuned. Keep, uh, we'll be right back. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. 
www.drcarol.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, with Tom Carey, the author of the new book, The Children of Roswell, A Seven-Decade Legacy of of Fear, Intimidation, and Cover-Ups. Tom has been studying UFOs and Roswell since 1991, Um, and obviously I was just asking him during the break, and he said that he's been to the uh, crash site a million times, talked to the people. I mean, that... To me, that's the most interesting part, talking to the people who, uh, who were there or who were children there. And we'll get to the children part in a minute. But you, before the break, you were starting to say that um, there was a crew of five, four who died upon impact and one who lived. I hadn't actually heard about the one who lived. But now, how, okay, how do we know, <laughs> for those who are not believing this, how do we know that there were four or five people in the spacecraft? Well, uh, Dr. Carroll, in interviewing uh, many people who had either seen the bodies or knew about the bodies, we came to a conclusion considering the there were three sites associated with the crash. The first site was up near the little town of Corona, New Mexico, where it was either an internal explosion of a craft or if it was external, it had to be something like a lightning strike that blew it up. It, it exploded. And upon the explosion, we believe that two, two of the occupants were thrown out and came to rest on a low bluff two and a half miles east of where the explosion had occurred. And... Uh, also, there was an inner cabin or a space uh, escape capsule of some sort that actually withstood the explosion, and that was carrying three other occupants, and that remained aloft for another 35 miles and came to rest just north of the town of Roswell. So you have two sites that had bodies. The first one of the two that were thrown out and fell to their demise on this low bluff up near Corona. And the the craft that uh, remained aloft, there were two that did not survive. They they remained uh, when when uh, the uh, recovery team got there, and some of the civilians got there before the air force. They saw two bodies that were dead, but there was one that was still alive and sort of staggering around, walking around very in a difficult manner, it was still alive. And we get this story from one of the Roswell City firemen who got out there. And uh, when he got home that night, of course his family wanted to know all about this. And they said, well, did uh, were there any alive? And he said, oh, yes, there was one. And, uh, well, what did it look like? Well... It was three to three and a half to four feet tall, very frail, slightly longer arms than what we have. But the overriding feature was this large pear-shaped head, like an egg-shaped inverted egg, a pear shape. This very large head for its body, and like ET. E- I'm sorry. Like ET. Yes. 
Uh-huh. And um, the wide set eyes that didn't close, that didn't close like, like we have our eyelids. It also had a little slit about an inch long for where its mouth would be. Just It was just a little slit. And well, then they, they wanted to know, well, did you, did you talk to it? And he said, yes, we talked to one another, but not like we talk by moving our mouth and lips and uh, what have you. He said, we talk to one another in our heads. Hmm. And we today, of course, we would say, well, that's like mental telepathy. But uh, he did not know the term, and he just said, we talk to one another in our heads. Well, what did you talk about? And he says, well, the uh, the creature said, don't. What he was conveying to me, being Dan Dwyer, was that I shouldn't worry about it. That that there's nothing that anybody could do. His ship was destroyed. His comrades were dead, and he was sort of stranded. And uh, not to worry about it, that he had accepted his fate. And that's pretty much all the conversation uh, that that took place before the military got there and everybody got rounded up and shunted off. There was another witness, uh, eyewitness, first-hand witness. She ultimately either committed suicide or was... uh, Murdered, I guess it would be be the way uh, mm-hmm. to describe it. She either committed suicide or was murdered later on. But her description, she was so distraught when she gave the description to her uh, parents that uh, she had worked at the base hospital there in 1947, and she had was taken into the emergency room by her boss, the colonel who operated the the hospital. Uh, he he said, "Follow me," and so they. He she followed him down the hallway and into the emergency room, and she says, "Oh, you you have some children," and then she realized, "Oh my God, they're not children, mm. they're child size, but they had these big heads." But the thing that really haunted her for the rest of her life, she said, and it was the eyes. Their eyes, they were mm. large, they were wide set. And they kept staring out. They wouldn't close. The mm, eyes mm. wouldn't close. They just kept staring out. And it just haunted her for the rest of her life. And like I said, she was found in a California hotel or motel years later with a plastic bag over her head. And the coroner said, well, it must have been suicide. But uh, she had bruises on her arm and scratches, which hmm. suggested that she was fighting for her life. So hmm. Hmm. we'll never know. So now, um, isn't there, I mean, these bodies were preserved, right? By Yes. They, we have witnesses at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Back then it was Wright Field, but it ultimately became Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, who described who described for us the these uh, capsules that uh, these beings were kept in cryogenic suspension. And I suspect they're still there or some other base that has an aeromedical facility. But that's, that's ultimately what happened is that they were, uh, first it was ice, you know, until they got these new uh, technologies uh, like cryogenic suspension. But uh, we have a witness report that uh, from this one building at Wright-Patterson on hot summer days, he would catch this smell of, he 
could he said have smelled of something like sulfur and uh, ammonia drifting out of this one building, suggesting that there was something being kept on ice there that uh, he didn't recognize the smell. But uh, later on, it was uh, they they put them in these capsules that people have described for us that uh, contained these little bodies. And what about the one who was still alive? What happened to him? The one that was still alive, it's interesting. Uh, we don't know. We know that the dead ones were shipped out from Roswell to Wright Field within days of their re- recovery from the crash site. They, they, they were shipped out right, pretty much right away. But the one that was alive, we don't know what they did with it, whether they kept it at Roswell or moved it to another place. Another base uh, like uh, Alamogordo, or which is now Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico, or took it to Los Alamos. We don't know, but it turns up at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base the following spring in April. So it's it's not seen at least it hasn't been reported to us as being seen until the following spring at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where it's still alive. And we get the story from a lieutenant colonel who was part of the Air War College. Now, the Air War College is conducted out of Montgomery, Alabama, Maxwell Air Force Base. But on this one week in 19, early 48, they took the class, they flew them to Wright-Patterson for... Uh, it wasn't on the, on the schedule. Usually they, they, they put on the schedule what, what the daily activities were going to be, but this one week the, the, the schedule was left blank. And we, uh, he tells us that, uh, of course he's dead now, but he, he told his sons, who we got the story from, that uh, they arrived at Wright-Patterson, and they were taken into this room, and, and there, you know, there's, standing around there, well, you know, what's going on here? What do we do now? And they brought in this strange wreckage, pieces of strange wreckage, where they all had a crack at trying to figure out what it was. They, they couldn't figure out what it was. You could wad it up like a, in your hand and then let it go, which straighten out and float down to the, uh, the desk table or tabletop. And uh, what is this? And they were told, honestly, that it was a recovery from a crashed flying saucer the previous summer. Well, the only one we know of is the Roswell. Uh, the previous summer would be 1947. The only one we know was the Roswell crash. Uh-huh. So when they were done there, they were taken into another room. And, you know, again, what, what's going on here? Well, they they uh, they pulled back a curtain, and it was obviously one of these uh, two-way mirrors that you can see through one side but you can't mm-hmm. the person on the inside can't see out so they're looking in there and here's this strange creature i mean the the, the class is taken aback they're all lieutenant colonels on up to general and they're just standing there with their mouths open what is going on here and so our source who is the son of the participant said that uh, his father described it as just as I described it to you previously. And he wanted to know, did you communicate with it? He said, well, not directly, but he says, all of a sudden I was overcome. I made a mental connection with it. Hmm. I was overcome with sadness for it. I was overcome with sadness, and I 
I felt I could feel its human-like qualities. He had hmm. great sympathy for it, and he he just felt the human side of it, and that's pretty much as far as it went. And so the the son asked, "Well, well, Dad, what happened to it?" And he just said, "They killed it. They killed they, it. They killed it." Well, what do you mean by that? Well, it doesn't mean they lined it up, uh, put it up against the wall, and shot it. Uh-huh. it. It just means that they a uh, couple of years. This would be 1948, so it would be four years after that. They were working at doing some experiment on it or with it, and it 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 perished in the experiment. So that's the best we have is that it lasted until it lived until 1952 when it died uh, of some experiment that they were doing with it or on it. Well, what do you feed an, <laughs> an extraterrestrial? What did they give it to eat? Uh, I do, uh, we've heard stories over the years just about everything, that it likes strawberry ice cream. Well, if it likes <laughs> strawberry ice cream, how did it eat it? Because uh, we have, uh, we have re- medical reports that the mouth didn't lead to anywhere. It was like just a, a cavity. It didn't like lead to a, a, a throat and a stomach and a digestive system. So we, I, I don't, to answer we don't know. We don't huh. know. So, all right, tell us about this whole um, (coughs) suppression by the government of um, the children of Roswell. What are some of the things that um, have been happening to try to keep these stories, uh, more stories, from coming out? Well, you know, uh, start with the adults. Uh, Most of the adults from 1947 who were involved are, are dead now. Yeah. And we got from one of the one of these uh, people uh, who was actually uh, he was a uh, uh, we think he was also not only a participant but he was assigned to disinform be a disinformation type person mm-hmm. and we we asked him well what's what's the game plan here what is the what is the government game plan and he said to run out the clock you know like a basketball game where you're just mm. calling to let the the clock run out, and uh, that more or less has taken place with the adults, but the children, even some of the children now, like Frankie Dwyer Rowe, who was a uh, first-hand participant in handling the wreckage, she was 12 years old at the time in 1947, she's now in her early 80s, I believe she would be, oh, uh, like 82 years old, Uh Fortunately, she's still with us and still doing well. Uh, but most of those, not most of those, but some of the children are starting to pass away, too, like the uh, the daughter of the base public information officer who was the director of the UFO Museum in Roswell died last year, and other children have passed away. So um, we're getting, and but not before we've, we've gotten their stories, fortunately. And uh, we are now also getting the stories from grandchildren. There was there was a sheriff, Sheriff George Wilcox of Chavez County, who helped the Air Force enforce the silence of the civilians. He passed away in 1961 without uh, going public. Of course, no one we didn't know about the Roswell case then. But we got the story about the Wilcox family, how they were, how they suffered under the Air Force 
threats for years. We got the story from their granddaughter, Barbara Duggar, and their grandson, George Wilcox, Jr. And what did they say? Well, they said that uh, the, the, uh, the Roswell incident destroyed the sheriff. It actually destroyed him. We were thinking, wow, it was just, you know, how did that destroy him? Well, it turns out that the Air Force used the sheriff because he was fluent in Spanish to go around to the Hispanic population in Roswell who knew about the crash and especially those who knew or had seen the bodies, the little bodies. You can explain away wreckage yeah. as, oh, that's, uh, that's some of our newest uh, aluminum alloys that we use on our aircraft, and that, yeah. that's what that was. But you can't explain away these little bodies that they saw with the big heads and the staring eyes. You can't explain that away so easily. So those were the ones that required special attention. And so they sent George Wilcox, the sheriff, around to the, to the families. They would uh, talk to the adults. You will remain silent about this. You will never speak about this again. Otherwise, you will be killed, and not only will you be killed, but your children will be killed. Hmm. And they delivered that message to especially everyone who had seen the bodies that were civilians. Now, the uh, outlying ranchers, because in, uh, with, with the base being so close to Roswell, a lot of planes coming and going, there were occasional crashes either of small planes or large planes, but it was always the ranchers and their family members that got out to the crash sites first. Uh, and, no, and it was no different in the case of this uh, crashed uh, UFO. The, the ranchers got out there first. Mm-hmm. They, had again, had seen everything, the wreckage, and especially these little bodies before the military got there. And on the spot, they swore them to silence. Uh, they invoked uh, national security it's a na- and patriotism. Oh, you mm. be patriot. You know, you, you, it's a national security thing. Please don't say anything. It, mm. It's uh, be a patriot. Well, Mm-mm. they followed that up because they figured, well, that's not gonna that's not gonna go so far as a direct threat. So they brought in this fellow from Wright Patterson. Okay, let me. I'm sorry. Let me. Well, we need to <laughs> we need to leave it there. We'll we'll come back um, to that. These are all cliffhangers. <laughs> I don't want to have to take a break, but we do. Um, my guest is Tom Carey. He's fascinating, and he's the author of the Children of what <laughs> the Children of Roswell. A Seven-Decade Legacy of Fear, Intimidation, and Cover-Ups. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, so stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. 
Dr. Carroll is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about why does the government suppress the children of Roswell. My guest is Tom Carey. He is one of the foremost experts of USOs and particularly Roswell. So um, before the break, you were, you were well, you know, one of the things, um, one of the things that's, that you were talking about how uh, the government was hoping that the clock would run out in the sense that the, the, each generation would know less and less, you know, would remember less and less, and it would be um, he, more of a hearsay because it's once, first it's the father to the son, and then it's, you know, grandparents and so on, so it kind of gets diluted. But um, what, what would you say is the main reason why there is this government co- cover-up? Well, we've, we've speculated, uh, Dr. Carroll, on that for years, and it's a combination of factors. Of course, back in 1947, the Cold War was just beginning with the Soviet Union and uh, the Communist bloc. And the War of the Worlds radio show from 1938 was still in the memories of the adults, where Orson Welles had uh, recreated on the Mercury Theater of the Air radio show the H.G. Wells, no relationship between Orson Welles and H.G. Wells, but the H.G. Wells War of the Worlds story. Even though they announced beforehand that it was a recreation, the people tuning in thought it was a real live investigation from Mars. The, mm-hmm. the Martians were landing, and the on the East Coast there was panic set in. So they had those two two things uh, going on, this, uh, the, the War of the Worlds and then the, the Cold War. I mean, World War II was just mm-hmm. over. We had a big war. Now we're going into the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And the question was, what, what should we, should we release this information or, what, or should we not? And uh, I, I like it. One of the witnesses, we got the, 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 one of the children of Roswell, we got, got a good answer for that. It was the daughter of Major Patrick Saunders, who was a base adjutant at the old at the Roswell base back in 1947 Roswell Army Airfield he was the base adjutant he was a major and he was actually entrusted with vacuuming the files after the 
after the event was over, cleaning up all of the files and removing any trace of this event. And she asked, his daughter finally asked him in the last year of his life, why did you do this? Why 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 was this covered up? Uh And he said, well, we were faced with a technology greater than our own, and we we didn't know what their intentions were. Hmm. So... The, when you don't know what's going on, you don't go out there and announce it uh, because, you know, the, the Air Force is charged with keeping uh, control of our skies, our, our airspace. And you don't want to go out there and say, well, hey, we're not in control of our own airspace. Uh-huh. That doesn't sound so good for anybody's career. Uh-huh. So, hmm. uh, and the other thing was, Dr. Carroll, was that the, the, the high Air Force officer... General Hoyt S. Vandenberg, who a few months later would become the chief of staff of the Air Force, he was in control of what was being given out to the press. He was back in Washington, and he himself had this fear, because he remembered the, the Orson Welles radio show, he had this fear that if the information was released at that time, that there would be panic in the streets. Mm-hmm. So it was a combination of factors, but most importantly, that the high up fellow in the Air Force felt this way that it should be covered up. He convinced President Truman that this was the way to go. Until we know more about it, we don't want panic in the streets. We don't want the Soviets to gain any uh, technological. Uh, insights by sending spies over to find out what this stuff is let's cover it up and say it was not a what it really was let's say it was something else and they could have they could have chosen something better than a weather balloon because it would have been more believable mm-hmm. if they said oh it was one of our latest bombers or one of our latest fighter jets i don't think we'd be talking about it today but they, right. they came up with this story where you go from a spaceship to a rubber weather balloon, for me, that would have been a bridge too far. That was a bridge too far. They should have been smarter and said it was something along the lines of a a newly developed uh, fighter jet or something like that. Okay, but what about the fact, I mean, that was 1947, so almost 70 years, and um, uh, nothing more has... What? Why is it still covered up? Well, that, and then the, the, the sort of a corollary to that. Um, why haven't there? Why haven't they sent any more of those spaceships? Why haven't they what? Sent any more of those spaceships? Why haven't we seen more? You mean UFOs? Well, I, <laughs> I mean, okay, I guess that's a. I I know. Well, were, were UFOs reported every day? Well, okay, that's true, but why, so they just haven't crashed. Oh, okay, okay, that's, uh, okay, I got you. Uh, the, why they haven't crashed, I can't answer. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they figured out uh, to stay away from lightning. I, I don't know. All we know is that, uh, you know, we have other alleged crashes. Uh, one near Aztec in uh, New Mexico in 1950, one near Las Vegas, Nevada in 1962. 
uh, I haven't investigated those because <laughs> the Roswell case is, has taken all of my investigative time mm-hmm. because it's uh, so labor-intensive. There are so many witnesses to, tr- to track down. We have a few new ones that we got in the last two weeks, and so we're committed to this case. Now, I, I suspect that there are others that have crashed, but uh, the Air Force has got their game together, and they, they have experience now in this area to cover them up quickly. But mostly I would think, although, you know, you have the Rendlesham Forest case in uh, England, that, pr- that case is pretty well documented because people have spent time on investigating it. It all has to do with whether you're going to commit your time to investigate something. Most people will not. Mm-hmm. So it's a combination of that, plus uh, probably there aren't that many crashes over the years. Uh, so, okay, so. so what do you think the significance is for us now as far as, I mean, yeah, I got guess that goes along with why they still haven't uh, fessed up. I mean, like, I was looking at Wikipedia, for example, today, and they still um, talk about it as a hoax. You know, there's still, there isn't anything... Well, they that... if, they, if they do that, then they don't, they don't, they haven't looked into the case. Uh, uh, we have people say that, oh, it was that Project Mogul balloon. Well, somebody who's done that really hasn't uh, in, uh, read much about the case because the Air Force explanation today that it was a this balloon device. Well, that's the same. That's made up of the same balloons that they put out there in 1947. The rubber rubber balloon, the tinfoil radar target, and for a whole host of reasons, that explanation falls apart on its well, face. Okay, but. So what do you think the significance is for today? Like with all of these UFOs and okay, not many have crashed. They figured it out, figured out how to not, how not to crash. Um, but what are they doing? What are they out there? Why, why, you know, what are they looking for? What's their intent? The UFOs? Yes. I, I, you know, yeah, I have to tell you, uh, uh, Dr. Carroll, Don Schmidt and I, we do not speculate on their intent or where they're from. We have enough uh, to prove (laughs) that the crash occurred. Where they're from or why they're here, uh, you can speculate on that as well as as I can. Uh, Their their behavior is so bizarre, uh, and the different types of UFOs that you see I'd have been I've been uh, happier if they stuck to one model like a like a flying disc but they've been every shape and every size some of them look like uh, not real solid objects but will of the wisps uh, stuff some are green fireballs so there's just been so many different descriptions of things seen in the sky uh, I couldn't I could not speculate on what their their intent might be Okay uh, because so I what? have my hands full. I'm, I'm a nuts and bolts type of investigator. Uh, I go from A to B to C to D. I go straight ahead. Uh, and okay. uh, I, so, uh, I, so don't, I don't... Why do you think that... So why is there still um, this cover-up? And <clears throat> I know that you, you write about how, for example, some, with some of the children, um, the daughter of a witness discovered her phone had been bugged for years, the Air Force tried to change the mind of, a, of one of the sons um, of a Roswell intelligence officer. 
there was a son of a principal witness who disappeared. Um, why, why is this intimidation still going on? I mean, because, because since there hasn't been or haven't been many or um, certainly not as celebrated or, you know, as well-known as Roswell, um, why, is there, why is there still an ongoing uh, effort to intimidate the children of Roswell if we're so many years past then? In other words, it's not like these things are crashing every other week. They have, they have to maintain the lie. They have to maintain the lie. Because if, uh, if the Air Force or any government entity admits that, okay, we've been, t- we've been lying to you for the last 70 years about yeah. this, then the first thing uh, people are going to think, well, yes. if, they, if they lied to us about such an event like this for the past 70 years, yes. what else have they been lying to us about? Yes, that's true. So that's... there would also be a political price to pay for people in, in, the, in the rooms of power if, if this, a lie like this has been divulged. To, to where you know there's no running away from it. Uh, I always I always because someone they always ask, well, will they ever divulge the that UFOs are real? I I always say no. They they will not because that, then they would have to admit to a lie, and also they would have to admit to being uh, to uh, using civil rights violations to keep keep them quiet. Today mm-hmm. we would we would call what they did to the people down in Roswell and perhaps elsewhere uh, civil rights violations. Mm -hmm. But what it's going to take is an event of some magnitude where there is no other explanation that everybody knows about. The old proverbial landing on the White House lawn, something like that. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, yes. Or or, or somewhere else that, that... they can't run away from it, and they have they they can't explain it uh, in any other manner. So that's yeah. what it's going to take. But otherwise, they will continue the the cover up, the lie, uh, so they don't have to uh, pay the piper. So to yes. Speak. Well, I want to give people um, your website so that they can find out more about this and your other books. Um, it's RoswellInvestigator.com. dot com. Roswell R O S W E L L Investigator. Dot com, And also, of course, this book can be bought in Barnes & Noble and Amazon and from the website. Again, it's The Children of Roswell, A Seven-Decade Legacy of Fear, Intimidation, and Cover-Ups. Well, Tom Carey, thank you so much. This is really fascinating stuff, and obviously it's been kept you, keeping you fascinated for years. And, uh, and, well, I'm and it's sorry, important. I can't, I can't uh, tell you where they're from or why they're here, but all <laughs> I can tell you is that they... That they are here, and we we know of at least one that uh, had an accident. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you again, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 